Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is me, Steffi Cohen. And Hayden Bo. And today we sit down with my sports psychologist, Patrick Alban. We actually worked together for about a year, a couple years ago, in preparation for one of the U.S. Opens. And uh, we dive into that in, in the conversation to more detail. But Patrick is a master's in sports psychology. He's also a collegiate athlete from one of the nation's top divisions tennis programs. He has consulted with many teams and pro athletes, conducted research in sports psychology, biomechanics, and motor development. And he now has his own business where he consults with athletes of over 50 disciplines and leverages his experience and time as an elite athlete to research more into athletic performance, as well as connect better with his athletes. In this episode, we talk about my experience working with a sports psychologist and what are some of the things that I struggled with as far as facing my fears, the fear of failure, expectations, etc. We also dive into what's called identity conflict and values. So essentially your self-worth being attached to what you're practicing or your sport. We talk about performance anxiety and why it happens, what's the underlying uh, fear that you have. And then we talk about burnout. So we give seven reasons why burnout tends to happen, specifically injuries, negative mindset, motivational climate, comparison to others, the fear of failure, having um, not enough challenge during, during your training, and the monotony and boredom of your training environment. So not only that, but Patrick gives uh, detailed strategies and tools about how you can deal with that and how you how you can identify uh, those holes in your mental strength. This uh, episode is also brought to you by Go Strong Equipment. Um, as we've been saying, Miami, this is uh, the first week where we're allowed to pretty much go back to almost regular life. So the gyms are all opening up. Um, and you know what? I'm willing to bet a lot of people decided that they actually don't need uh, a gym to go to. They can do it at their house. And if you're one of those people and you want to get the best equipment, Go Strong is the Rolls Royce of gym equipment. If you're a Rolls Royce kind of person, if you're an Apple kind of person, this man, this is where you want to be. If you're a Fisher Price kind of person, if you're a no name brand kind of person, maybe not for you. But uh, if you like nice things. Go strong is the obvious option, in my opinion. Cool. So I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. This one really hits home for me. This is a, a topic that uh, has been just so beneficial for me to talk about. And hopefully by bringing more light to the world of sports psychology and therapy and counseling, we can make it less taboo and more mainstream and hopefully get you guys, uh, you know, to, to do it more often as well. Finally, we mentioned on the last podcast, but I want to mention it again. Every month, we're going to be giving away free hybrid apparel, uh, a free hybrid apparel care package to every or to not sorry, not to every to one listener who tags hybrid unlimited in their story. So all you have to do to, to be eligible is take a screenshot of the episode you're listening to uh, tag hybrid unlimited. If you want some extra brownie points, you can tag Steffi and myself as well. Uh, and we'll choose one of you guys every month and we'll hook you up with with our newest, latest and greatest stuff. Uh, so sit back, relax, enjoy this conversation with Patrick Alban. What's up, Patrick? Welcome to Hybrid Unlimited. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for taking time to sit down and talk to us. 
We appreciate your time. I've, we've been trying to make this podcast happen for like a year, I think. Ever <laughs> since we started the podcast yeah. and we did the um, the live session in, in the Facebook group, we were so much good feedback on that. So. And people absolutely loved that. Yeah, that was great to hear. Yeah, you know what? I honestly wanted to start very early on and then I had some health problems. So just kind of things slid, but I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah me too. I think that was such a good introduction for people because we offered it as a free thing. Mm-hmm. And like you said, some people don't have a clear understanding of what sports psychology is. Mm-hmm. So they're not willing to maybe take that first step in paying for it themselves. But since it was offered as a free product, all these people got exposed to it and they're like, oh, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, and they, they got to see the value of it, with, yes. you know, out having to actually invest themselves. What, so what, first of all, Patrick, who are you? Mm-hmm. And, you know, tell, tell us a little bit more about your athletic background, because I think that's pretty relevant to a conversation and then your educational background and what you do for a living. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I have a company called SPMI and I specialize in working with athletes in the field of sports psychology. And, you know, what really differentiates my company from others is that we are very focused on athletes, you know, athletes and high performers. So unlike other fields, you know, a lot of my background comes from specifically sports psychology, movement science, biomechanics, developmental psychology, a lot of areas that we as athletes practically use. So that really goes into effect with the athletes in addition to, of course, other coursework like counseling and um, other general psychology areas. Uh, My background is um, in general psychology and sports psychology. I also interned for IMG. Uh, I worked there for six months specifically at the Everett Tennis Academy, uh, which is one of the top tennis academies in the world in Boca. Uh, from there, I developed programs for athletes, parents, and coaches. Um, I've also taught at a university level for a year and a half, uh, teaching specifically sports psychology courses. And then when I started with my company almost 10 years ago, um, I just you know really grew from there. So the athletes I've worked with range from very young athletes, around eight, nine years old, all the way to elite world-class professional athletes, Olympians, uh, professional athletes in over 25 sports. And I personally have worked with over 75 different sports. Um, my background in sports also has played a very big role in what I do. Um, as a junior, I played uh, tennis at a pretty high level. I started late. I didn't have a lot of means and I dealt with everything. I mean, performance anxiety, struggling with confidence, um, you know, difficulty focusing. And I, you know, managed uh, to actually get down here and play tennis for Barry University, which is a top division two tennis program. And while playing there, I mean, it was just incredible to see the vast difference between how an athlete practices and how he competes. So for me, I was a great practice player. I could play great in practice. I was relaxed. I didn't think much and I was very present. But when it came to these college matches, my mind would go everywhere. I mean, the amount of thoughts I have in my mind went from one or two to hundreds at a time. And it was such a frustration because here you are as an athlete, knowing that you can perform at such a high level, but you can't, you know, you're only showing a glimpse of your full potential. Mm-hmm. And that was something that really resonated in him. What sort of things would you think about that would throw you off your game? Yeah, it was, it was the weirdest thing. I would be, that's such a great question because I would be there at times and it was just random stuff like the belief system. Do I truly believe that I can beat this player? I'd find myself up against someone who, you know, on paper I shouldn't beat. And all of a sudden I start questioning my abilities. And then as a result, you know, I start thinking about it throughout. Oh, I'm up right now. And then you start doubting yourself. Can you win this game? Can you finish this set? You know, and then there will be times where <laughs> this is the other part. I never realized until years later, but I also had asthma. So I didn't know I had asthma. So but I knew that I was on a clock. I knew that after about 35 minutes of giving 100 percent, 
my oxygen capacity would go down significantly. I could not breathe. I would struggle. So I had two options. It was either I absolutely go all in and I play as aggressively as possible and try to pretty much destroy my opponent. Or when I felt tired, I would just kind of push. We would say in tennis, I would play defensively. But then that would bring my opponent back in the match. And then I ended up just, you know, it was just a fitness test and it was really tough. So those were the two struggles I had. So, you know, lo and behold, I, I worked on those things. Um, I remember one day specifically where I was on the court and I was just hitting with a friend and I remember hitting a backhand. I hit this backhand and it's just a normal backhand. I didn't even think anything bad. And it goes in the net. I was wondering, well, why does that happen? Why is it? Because if you were to take a video and see that backhand, you wouldn't be able to tell by looking at it from a side angle that I hit it in the net. I mean, I just barely clipped the net. Now, why is that? What causes that? So that was one of the first moments in my life where I wanted to start a company and started with the idea of a product. I wanted to actually start a product that was based on biofeedback that would be able to help athletes in real time understand what happened to your thoughts there, right? What changed? What changed physiologically? And unfortunately, in grad school, there was this awakening where I discovered that, hey, Patrick, that technology is just not available. You can't do that. You can use biofeedback, but you can't move. You have to sit down. And that's not really um, related with a high validity to, to real competition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was like my journey. And then I went into services and, you know, I've been helping athletes. My passion is really not so much just to help athletes perform at their full potential, but really get them out of the rut because they're very unhappy. You know, I want athletes to really feel fulfilled. Right. And also become fearless. That's the other key, too. Mm -hmm. You answered both the questions that I had written down. <laughs> Why did you decide to go into sports psychology and what's different about SBMI or like what's the mission? Yeah. But you answered both. I think it's really interesting that uh, I feel like in your field, there's such a wide variation between uh, techniques that different therapists use. Mm -hmm. And I thought one that was really interesting that you used with Steffi personally was which was counterintuitive to me was uh, visualizing things just going horribly wrong yeah. because I, I had worked with a sports psychologist briefly for uh, hockey growing up at a, at a young age. And, you know, mainly what we had focused on was just over and over and over again, visualizing like the best possible result. So it was, it was to me at first counterintuitive, counterintuitive to, to hear you say, you know, yeah. imagine missing your first squat and your second squat and like being a, because you don't want to be a pessimist or negative, right? You don't want to even like bring those thoughts into your head as a possibility, that's, right? That's how the possibility of failure, people avoid that. Yeah. Because it's scary, right? You don't wanna you don't wanna think about things not going your way. So but what happens when you're in a situation when things don't go your way? You're not prepared to face that. And then what do you do? You panic, mm -hmm. which has happened to me in competitions. Sure. And we saw a huge change after uh you guys were working together and you went to the US Open. And that exact thing happened where you missed your first squat, missed your second squat. But how calm and composed was I? Completely different person. It, it was it was actually amazing to see because, you know, in the past, you could hit a squat, you could hit your first squat and it just didn't, even if it just didn't feel like you're having your best day. I would go to the back and cry. You'd be pissed. Yeah. You know, but this was like, this is a, basically the worst situation you could be in oh. as a power lifter is to miss your first two squats. Mm -hmm. Because now it's like you're just doing a third one to try to stay in the game instead of going into the next lift, having built up, a, you know, a good base for your total. And you had one of your best competitions of your, your life. Yeah. Hey, since we're on the topic of uh, the U.S. Open and our work together. So to give you guys a little bit of background, Patrick and I worked together about two years ago, was mm -hmm. it? More or less in preparation for the U.S. Open. Um And we worked together for, I want to say, like at least a year leading into that competition. And it was one of the best decisions of my life. Like I was, like I said, I was very apprehensive initially to 
get any sort of therapy because I didn't have that good of an experience in the past with counselors and therapists. I, I just never felt like I was given any tools. Like it was way too psychoanalytical, you know, trying to look into the past and my fears and whatnot. But I never felt like I, I was given tools to actually improve myself. And I think, so that was one of the things that I love the most. The second thing that I love the most was how much introspection I had to do. Like those, our sessions were challenging. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to, I had to be on top of it the entire time. You can't like zone out when you're with Patrick because he's like constantly asking you questions and telling you to think about the answer and then the answer of the answer. And there's, you know, it, it's good because it, it does get your wheel spinning and it, it, it makes you think about everything in a different way, I guess, depending on the way that you're, um, directing the conversation. Um, let's talk a little bit about kind of the work that we did mm -hmm. and kind of what the approach that you took with me and, yeah. and the improvements that you saw, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to go back even to what Hayden mentioned about, you know, how kind of weird that is to attack something that is a weakness, right. And to visualize, mm -hmm. um, really making mistakes. And what we call that in psychology is called the paradoxical method. And basically what it implies is that what we naturally do with our brain is when we feel anxious, our natural response is to avoid that situation, right? So if it's like, okay, you have a big competition coming up, now it's saying, hey, don't make the mistakes. Well, guess what? You're going to do everything you can to avoid those thoughts, avoid those images, right? Not even talk about it. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the problem. By avoiding that, now you go out there and if it happens, the anxiety is going to be incredibly high because we just trained our brain to say, no, that's dangerous. Now, with the paradoxical method, what it means is that instead of avoiding it, you purposely go after it. So in a sense, what that means is that to decrease anxiety, we have to actually look for ways to purposefully increase it. Right now, we can do that from an imagery perspective, which is imagining it. And you say, OK, well, I'm going to imagine certain repetitions of visualizing that. OK, I made this mistake. But more importantly, it's about the response. Remember, we spoke about this a lot. So, well, the response has to be that everything's OK. Right. Mm -hmm. So you would visualize response of staying calm, staying relaxed, staying confident within yourself and really having that high level belief that, you know, that nothing has, has changed. And that's really what the paradoxical method is about. And that's what you, know, you were practicing. And we also call this uh, systematic desensitization. So to break it down even more, what happens is you first need to understand what are the athlete's main fears. Right. And almost all fears are emotional. They're not physical. You know, so I'll explain a little bit more about that later. But just to get into what we're discussing now, if you have a fear of losing or a fear of, you know, not being able to hit that particular mark with the, with your lift, then we need to understand, OK, what is that and what happens and what, where do your thoughts go and what are your biggest fears? And then from there, we start to attack it. And then once we start to attack it, the more reps you do, what you're doing in your brain is you're actually facing it. And when you face it, your brain becomes desensitized to the fear. To the point where the anxiety levels drop and now your brain or specifically the amygdala will produce less adrenaline throughout the body to where now this pressure goes from feeling overwhelming to now becoming manageable. And that's really the goal, right? The goal isn't to get rid of pressure. That's really the myth. Every coach or not every coach, but a lot of coaches will say, hey, you know what? There's something wrong with it. You have to get rid of that. Why are you nervous? And well, that's the natural response. Why? Because you care. And that's a good thing. No one's saying you shouldn't care. <laughs> but the whole point is, hey, you know what? How can we get it from being overwhelming to manageable? Because it's the athlete who can manage pressure the best, who is the one who can perform at the best when they need it the most. 
I love that. I love that because I remember clearly, you know, I think I had a couple of competitions where I was overly nervous, like just way too much. And then I swung it all the way to the other side because I thought I had to remain calm because that was the advice I was being given. Oh, you just got to stay calm, you know, like don't get too nervous. There's nothing to be afraid of. And I literally felt dead. I felt like I, I had no emotions inside of me and no kind of like will to even compete because I, I suppressed my emotions to such a high degree that there was nothing left there for me. Yeah. So I think that when you change the dialogue from fear, say to excitement, because that's like what I, what I did, right. Instead of being afraid of the outcome, I was excited to be there. And it's a very similar feeling when you're about to go into a competition, you know, that it's kind of like that same, like the butterflies in your stomach, mm -hmm. that your adrenaline rushing, your heart rate beating you. It's all about perception, interpretation. You can interpret that as a fear or mm -hmm. excitement. And that made a huge difference for me. Are you familiar with Wayne Gretzky? Yes. I always ask this because Steph tells me that people are not, but you know, I come from Canada and he's a hockey player. <laughs> yeah, he's, so, he's you know. huge. He's the biggest athlete from Canada. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, I think it's interesting that you say that because mm -hmm. I don't know if he had worked with a sports psychologist or he kind of like came to this on his own, but people say one of the reasons why he was the best, uh, was because he had visualized and played out in his mind, every mm -hmm. possible situation, you know, or as many as, as a person could. Yeah. So he was just like, you're saying, it's like a gradual exposure to, to things going poorly and going correctly and just being prepared for everything and sort of desensitizing yourself to, to things going wrong, always being able to stay under control. Cause he's like, you know, he's not the biggest guy or fastest, mm -hmm. strongest, not the best shot but was able to just dominate and see the game in a way that, you know, it looked like he was playing a different game than everybody else. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and on top of that, Wayne Gretzky had a world-class mindset. His belief system was, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Mm -hmm. That's a great quote. So, so think about that, right? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Now, most of us, and it's not our fault, by the way, it's just how the brain responds. We don't want to miss any shots. So as a result, we're so meticulous on when we're going to take the shot. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that our brain has to go through a period of struggle in order to create mastery. Mm -hmm. We know that, right? There's just no way of avoiding that. That is neurologically required. Um, we could go into that a little bit too in terms of myelin production, right? Myelin production is our memory, our cell's memory of how we can master a skill. So for someone like Wayne Gretzky, who has taken countless shots, well, we don't see the mistakes. But in reality, as a kid, he made probably three to five, maybe 10 times more mistakes than even sure. at the college level of an athlete, hockey. Right. So that's really the key. It's like, you know, we have to be able to attack whatever it is we're afraid of in order to reach our full potential. It's uh same story. I think it was a Barry Bonds also mm -hmm. most uh, home runs, but also most strikeouts. Yeah. Sa same sort of uh, concept mm -hmm. of kind of swinging for the fences and, you know, being being willing to make those mistakes to also have the successes. Another another thing that we that we were working on that was a pretty big limiting factor for me was expectations from the public. Cause I, I think at that time I had just been gaining more traction exposure and been more kind of like in the public eye, winning more competitions and such. And I was really struggling with, you know, kind of making sure that I don't let people down either like my training partners, my family, fans, you know, I, that was hard for me. And I, I feel like I, the more competitions that I won, the higher the pressure was of performing at that level. I didn't want to go into a competition and do less well than I did in the previous one kind of thing. And I think, I mean, I, I still struggle with that to okay. a certain extent. Well, because people, it, it's really tough for somebody in your position because you lift them like literally the most, 
in the world. So every time you, you do, do better than you did in the last one, you're setting a world record. And that's a huge amount of pressure and people are expecting you to do so. You know, people come to watch you lift or they watch a live feed of you lifting because they want to see you like continue to do more. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it is a ton of pressure, right? It's like when we, same thing with, with some of the best male power lifters in the world. You know, if Yuri Belkin doesn't hit a PR, we're like, ah, you bum, you know, but it's like, he's still the best guy in the world, whether he, you know, does his best ever lift or not, he's there to win. And it's, it's, it's interesting, I think, especially in powerlifting because, you know, a basketball game, or a hockey game, it's kind of hard to, or any sort of traditional sports, it's hard to quantify what a, what exactly your best game is. You know, there's many different areas where you can excel. You can have a game where you're a great support player. You can have a game where you get the most assists, where you get the most, you know, goals you ever had, or had play the best defensive game. But in powerlifting, it's so objective because it all comes down to your total and it's one number. And yeah. people can see, is that the best total you've ever had or is it not? And if you haven't, and, and I don't know it doesn't matter it, if you win. You and know. I don't know if it's a powerlifting thing, but also people love the drama. And I know for a fact that so many people want to see me fail, mm. you know, and that just adds another layer mm. of like, I don't want to, you know, yeah. I don't want people to, I don't want to give that uh, sense of accomplishment to people who want to see me fail. Am I going to fail for them kind of uh-huh. thing? So let's, let's get into that. So you mentioned identity conflict and values and self-worth yeah. and how that relates to the expectations that you have for yourself and people have for you. Yeah. So I want to really break down the origin of why we have expectations. I I think that is such a fascinating part of our brain. And it's incredible because it occurs at a much younger age than we're even aware of. Um, What usually happens a lot of times is, you know, I'll give you an example. I like to use this story with my clients. I call it the the kid in the French fry story. But, you know, there's this kid, he's about five, maybe six years old, and he's in the back seat of his dad's car. And one evening they drive by like a Chick-fil-A and the kid politely asks his dad, you know, can we please get French fries? So the dad responds, yes, and they go inside and the dad buys him some French fries and a meal. And now the kid is just happy. He's eating, he's humming, everything's good. And then the father thinks to himself, well, you know what? I bet you my son won't mind if I have one French fry. So he reaches over to grab a French fry. And while he's reaching over to grab the French fry, his kid quickly swats his hand away and he says, no, they're mine. Sounds like me. And, and that's really, and this is really the origin of expectations because, you know, why did the kid go from being such a sweet kid in the car to now being so upset? Mm-hmm. And really the origin of this is because the kid felt like he owned the French fries. He's only five, six years old. He hasn't processed it. He thought that those, those French fries are his. He owned them. It wasn't because he was wanting to be rude. Now, this same thing applies in sports. Right. We start doing well early on. We have no expectations. No one even knows who we are. And then all of a sudden we start to do better and better. And out of nowhere, it's like we have a magnifying glass on us. Mm-hmm. So every success is almost expected. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, Stephanie, you broke a world record. Great. OK, we expected that. Messi, you score another goal. Great. OK, you know, you won the entire game for Argentina. No big deal. Right. And, and that really puts a ton of pressure because then we unconsciously a lot of times think that it is required that we should succeed, right? And if not, then it's like someone stole it from us. So how do we revert? We, we end up responding with anger or frustration or, you know, sadness. And a lot of times even burnout will quit, you know, we'll, we'll turn away from the sport because it's too much, right? Yeah. So we have to understand there's several things I, I tell my athletes is so important. No one owns winning. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but when you start thinking about no one owns winning, it takes a ton of pressure off. Really, the goal is to want winning, right? We want to win. It's not that we own winning. When you feel like you own winning, you're going to bring a ton of pressure with you, right? Because mm-hmm. now you're protecting it. 
And you can't go out there with a relaxed, quiet mind protecting something. Mm-hmm. And, and that's ultimately what frees the mind. Say, hey, you know what? I want it. And that's good enough. Um, but yeah, that, that's really the big part of expectations. And of course, the higher the expectation, the more anxiety, right? And then that a lot of times is attributed to how much meaning we apply to something. So for example, Steffi, when you were going into the US Open, that is huge. So you know that kind of meaning that's applied to it naturally brings a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. So you know the problem also we see with many coaches and even parents and, and just teammates is that they, they're so, they emphasize so much the focusing part of performance. Like you have to focus so much more and that's the worst route to go. We actually have to emphasize more of the relaxation process, right? The coping mechanism. We're already focused. You're elite athletes. You're world-class athletes. You don't need to focus anymore. You know how to do it. It's in your brain. It's about, hey, how do you do the opposite? How do you let go and detach? So that's another thing we worked on, right? Detachment from your fears, mm-hmm. detachment from worries, which is a key part for any world-class athlete. I can tell any athlete in practice, focus. I don't need to. And they're going to perform you know, 99 mm-hmm. or 100 times successfully. Mm-hmm. But under pressure... That's when we see him falter. What was that clip that you sent me of that movie where it's golf? <laughs> Remember? And I shared it to you. It was so good. What was that quote? Who's the actor? Will, Will Smith? It was Will Smith. And yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so the, the quote was, think with your hands, not with your head. Your hand, I love that. Your hands are wiser than your head's ever going to be. And really that applies directly to muscle memory, right? Our subconscious. You train so many times, you use so many repetitions in the same sequence over and over again. You don't need to think. You know, we know this in studies. The mm-hmm. highest elite athletes in the world that perform successfully, they utilize 10% of their brain's capacity compared to amateur athletes when it comes to thinking or focusing. So they're barely thinking, right? Everything is happening more at a neurological level where it's just, you know, you have these neurons that are firing off these memories. And that's really the key to success. And a lot of times we overcomplicate it, right? Mm-hmm. You have a coach get out there and I've seen this many times before and I just want to grab the coach and the coach is like, you know, in the middle of it, giving them tons of feedback. Mm-hmm. And then the athlete's performance just plummets completely. Mm-hmm. And it's because, you know what, you got them out of that natural process that they've been training for every day. Mm-hmm. Sure. Is, you that, see, you is that what's called a flow state? Flow state, yeah. Flow means um, you're so focused on the activity that nothing else matters. Yeah. Are you familiar with Stephen Kotler? Yeah. Uh, no, Stephen Kotler, no, no. Uh, he's big on flow for writing specifically, okay. not for sports, but I yeah. did a, a course with him oh, and, nice. and it was yeah. really, really good. Uh, I wanted to get him into to talk with... Uh, just one of your tangents? Yeah. All the people are hybrid. <laughs> well, just you got me going on uh, on flow. But I, I want to go back to what you said about um, owning winning because I've never heard it phrased like that. And it's so well put mm-hmm. because just the framing of that, like I, I, in hockey, I, I grew up playing hockey at a high level and, and I have played for losing teams and I played for winning teams. And the mindset is so different, mm-hmm. like vividly a memory that, that stands out to me. There's this team, they were called the junior Canadians and they were just un- an unbelievable team. Like they didn't lose for maybe five years straight. And we were up to nothing on this team for the entire game except for the last five minutes of the third period and we got um two penalties so which means we only had three players on the ice and they had five they're a much better team than us so we should have never been in this position to begin with now we had an extreme handicap we ended up losing the game nine to two right which sounds horrible but we were the second last place team and to us it was still like a huge win we were like yeah but we almost won like we lost horribly, but we almost won, you know, whereas, you know, it, it compare that to the, the, the framing of being on a winning team. You know, I also played for a second place team and losing to the third place team 
you feel worthless, you know, just absolutely worthless. And it's because we felt like we owned winning, like we were expected to win. Winning is what we do. And we lost to a team that on paper we should have beat. And it's like devastating. It's such a fine line, right? Between mm-hmm. like, cause I do feel like I've, I've, I'm, I'm guilty of thinking that I own winning, but at the same time, it's like, how do you draw that line between, you know, letting go of winning of like the winning trophy that I always feel like I'm protecting, like putting it on the table, like, and say, okay, it's up for grabs. Because I feel like when I do that, it's like, it almost is perceived by myself as like, I don't care or I'm caring less. You're like the last Spartan fighting off all the Persians. That's what you are when you're at the top, you know, like the wolf at the top. Yeah, seriously. I'm like at the top holding the, the, the thing and I'm like trying to fight off everyone. (laughs) Like that's how I feel in my head. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, we have to look at a couple things. So when you look at expectations, um, you know, as I spoke to you about the fact that no one owns winning, the other part is to understand that winning is not an entitlement, right? And it's not our fault, by the way. A lot of times it's everyone around us. They, they treat it as if, you know, we've arrived and it's an entitlement. And when we look at it as an entitlement, then what happens is we stop using the same process that got us there, right? So success is an entitlement. Um, in fact, what we need to do instead is it's based on um, earning, right? Earning is how we achieve Winnings. In other words, the goal is to earn and then re-earn versus feeling, hey, I've arrived. Mm-hmm. That's when we get in trouble. Um, the other thing, too, that has to do with um, the whole expectation part of it is that, um, you know, a lot of times we focus on other people, right? And this is what I mean by it. So we'll focus on parents, coaches, teammates, scouts, um, you know, colleges, and they'll say things like, Uh, You know, you're supposed to perform this way. You're supposed to do this. And the worst thing we can do is we treat it as if those things are a part of our responsibility, right? That we are responsible for other people's beliefs, other people's feelings, other people's thoughts. That's another mistake or a trap that gets us stuck in this kind of self-battle or self-defeat under pressure. I love that. Um, Okay, so letting go of winning. Say that I lose and now I'm burnt out. Let's talk about that. Because I feel like I have, I'm burnt out right now, but I didn't lose. Mm-hmm. Didn't really lose, right? I mean, I did, no, did you, lose, but like. Did you? You set a bunch of world records in your last powerlifting meet. Yeah, but I came second. What? No, you didn't. Yeah, versus against Mariana. Oh, that well, that's that wasn't your last meet. I'm thinking of the, oh, yeah, the yeah. showdown where nah, you cut okay. down a weight class and broke a bunch of records. Yeah, but no, I mean, I'm at a point right now where I decided to take a break from powerlifting for for this for 2020 for many reasons i mean one obviously just covid messed up all the co- the competition schedules so i don't know when the next one's gonna be and i stopped training so i said whatever i'll pick it up in 2021 but honestly like i i did feel like i desperately needed a break from it and i needed to like focus on on other things to kind of rekindle the joy that I, the genuine joy that i have for working out fitness and training you know, and it's tough because, because to a certain extent, I feel like I'm, I'm giving up on certain goals or at least like temporarily giving up on them. But at the same time, I don't, I can't see how else it could have played out. You know, I've, for five years, I've been going so hard, just my body's beat up. My mind is beat up. I honestly didn't enjoy training anymore. You know, I was going into the gym and like, being miserable pretty much and making everyone around me miserable too. So I, I felt like I just needed to take a step back. Obviously 
you know, I think that if I, if, if I had to continue competing for this year, like if there were competitions scheduled and, and I had places that, that I had to show up, I think likely I would have started working with you again and trying to deal with it. But, um, you know, because of the situation, it, it didn't require me to do that, but let's talk about burnout. Like kind of why does it happen and what are some of the things that people can do to fight it? Yeah. So there's, okay. So there's different levels. So you have kind of more of the superficial level and that has to do a lot with motivational climate, meaning, okay. So basically what is your training environment? Like, what does it consist of? What are your coaches like? Are they more positive? Are they more negative? Are they highly analytical? but also your behaviors, you know, do you, are you the type of person that looks at a lot of film and sees how you do and you really analyze your technique all the time and you compare it. So those are more of the surface things, right? We're, we're comparing, that's we call it the comparison trap. We want to see how we are compared to our competitors, what we're missing, you know, what edge they may have over us. Right. And then the other part is just injuries too. So mm -hmm. if, you know, an athlete is having constant or chronic injuries that can really, really, you know, affect their, their mood. And I was working with an athlete last year, a professional tennis player, very talented player, but every single time she took a step forward, she'd take two steps backwards because of the injury. Mm -hmm. And it's so difficult because as a high level athlete, you know, what's required to reach that level and to sustain it. Mm -hmm. And then the more injuries you go through, well, guess what? You got to put in that time just to get back some of that. That's the worst. It's I know so that too tough. well. Yeah. So that's, that's really tough. And, and then you combine that with, uh, the underlying, the deeper root issue. And this is the real issue for most athletes. And this is something that, you know, like what you did, Steffi was the best thing you could do is take time off because you need to understand why are you unhappy? Right? Like why, what is it that, that why is the passion not there? Mm -hmm. And when we look at why the passion isn't there. A lot of times it has to do with what's called identity conflict. And identity conflict means that we identify maladaptively with something with that sport that relates to our self-worth. In other words, that sport isn't just for the act of doing it. Now it becomes a part of who we are. And when we cannot achieve that, we feel less as a person. And is that always problematic or is that, is there a healthy way to tie your identity to a sport? Yeah, there is. A, there is a healthy way. Um, I'll give you a good example because this is something I see a lot with athletes. I like to give this example and it's pretty current. So I'm sure you guys are big into social media and they have a lot of ads, at least they had last year, that were trying to convince young entrepreneurs into being successful CEOs. And they would say, hey, you know what? You want to be successful, read 50 books a year, right? And you always see that. And the guy has like 50 books stacked on a table and he's like looking at and counting it. So you have these young guys and they're like, okay, I got to read 50 books. So what are they doing? They're reading a book and they're getting burnt out. And after two or three, they start counting how many weeks they have left to meet this goal. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, a majority of them quit because they're like, this is too much. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that it's not about, you know, the end destination. So instead of saying, Hey, I, I need to read 50 books to be successful. No, the goal should simply be, I want to become a better reader, mm -hmm. right? I want to become a better power lifter. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times because of societal pressure, we feel like, no, there should be something more to that, right? No, I need to win another U.S. Open. Yeah, that's, that's going to come, I promise you. But your joy will not come with that goal. You're going to be miserable until you hit that goal. Mm -hmm. And that's not a life, right? We also call this destination disease and all of us have it. Any type A successful person, I know I've gone through it too. If I just reach this level and then you reach it, then what happens? It's always a moving target. I got to do it yeah. again and again and again. And you're just empty. And, and that's the point. So I think, you know, someone like you, Steffi, has reached so much success in your sport. I mean, you repeat this process and it gets harder. So that fulfillment that you're chasing, it just becomes that much more unfulfilling at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
right? Because think about what we're doing. We are exchanging hours and hours throughout our day for just a few moments of happiness. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of brings in the differentiation between joy and happiness, right? Happiness is the end byproduct. Joy is the act of doing. Mm -hmm. So really what I would suggest, even I know this isn't a consultation, but we're kind of leading towards this and it's (laughs) going to help a lot of listeners is focus on what you want to become, right? Because there's so much more to that than where your destination is, right? Because who you want to become as a person is endless, Mm -hmm. right? Because it goes beyond. I tell this to my other professional athletes. I have world-class golfers, tennis players. It's the same thing to them. I said, look, I don't care if you hit number one in the world. That is not your end goal in life. It may seem that way, but I believe that you have way more to give than that. That's going to be a tool for you, a resource for something much greater. And right. it could be outside of the sport? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Business world, obviously, you know, personal family life too. We tend to get fixated on these numerical accolades, which are not bad, but they're bad when they start to affect us emotionally and we start to attribute our values with it. Right. And that's what we call values identity. How do I identify who we are? Mm -hmm. We have to really take a step back and look at that. I mean, this COVID thing really helped me a lot, to be honest, because I got very sick after I got sick. You know, I was thinking the whole time, well, I want to reach this goal. But every single time I wanted to do something, I was sick. I had two operations. Once that took place, I was like, okay, I can finally do this. Then COVID hits. My whole business changes. March hit. I think it was March uh, 12th or 8th. They shut down all college sports. Every single college sports was canceled. I show up in the morning. I have clients online. None of them show up. They don't send me a text. They don't send me anything. I'm wondering what's going on because these are great clients. I find out, oh, Patrick, last night we just heard word that our program was suspended. So after that, I was like, okay, well, I got to focus on this becoming part. Becoming is like, hey, what do I want to do to serve? And for me now, like I showed you, I just started like the YouTube channel. I want to do stuff that's more about becoming better versus reaching a destination Mm -hmm. and in essence you become better at what you do and everything else takes care of itself so it's sort of like being process oriented versus goal oriented or like you know almost like dressing for the job you want sort of thing instead of in a way i think process is just an act right process is an act but it's not fulfilling it's more about your identity right because there's an emotional component to it it's like why do you wake up in the morning right like what are you serving right I think there's only, only so much serving of ourselves we can do before we're like, all right, this is kind of empty, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like even giving right now, like the fact we're doing a podcast phenomenal because this is a great feeling, right? To be able to reach out and help a lot of people is, is an awesome gift. And I think that's, that's really when it becomes something special. And, you know, I'm sure, Sevi, for you, like achieving that, those type of records, those type of just accolades are incredible feelings. But at the same time, reaching out and helping others and what you do is just phenomenal and something you do all the time. They go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Like the fact that I go show up and and uh, achieve my goals is what feeds into who I want to become, mm-hmm. and it feeds into how I can help others. One hundred percent. But I definitely think that helping others has got to be the most rewarding for you. You know, a lot of people say that, but I mean, all these medals and stuff that we have up here, these are ones that I saved because she'll throw them out because <laughs> she doesn't care like about that kind of stuff. But the one that you're really proud of, that you, the only one that you put up there, is that YouTube plaque. Right. And I think that's because you enjoy the process of giving back and providing information and actually helping people even more so than achieving those those personal goals yourself. Yeah, I, I could be wrong. No, I don't no, want to speak no. for you, but that, I mean, just from the way you behave, I feel like uh, like you've made that clear. Yeah, you're right. And we had that conversation the other day. It's like I d- Hayden, you made an observation about how um, what was the word you used? I need the context. Um, so we were talking about how like 
methodical I am with with the actions that I decide to take every month or every year. And I explained to you, I was like, yeah, you know, because what I think today is what kind of story do I want to tell five years or 10 years or 15 years from now? And that's what essentially dictates the path that I want to take. So for example, I know that in the next three, four years, I want to run an ultra 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 marathon. I know I want to do 101 mile race. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's for the physical challenge. Like I'm super into that kind of stuff, but also is for the story that I want to tell, you know, like where did I come from and how the hell did I get there? Right. How does a, a Jewish girl from a Hispanic family go from there to running an ultra marathon? And why did I do it? And maybe I can beat the best time for like any other female. I don't know, you know, and what kind of stories are going to tell? How is that going to inspire other girls or, or other people to put themselves in, un, in uncomfortable situations, challenge themselves to reach a goal? Yeah. You know, I forget what the word you used was, but calculated, calculated. Yeah. No. But anyway, I didn't want to interrupt you. Yeah, no, it's good. So, okay. So we spoke about injuries, motivational climate comparison. Let's get into, um, fear of failure. Yeah, fear of failure is um, it, it's got to be at the core of what I do with many athletes. And when it's kind of covered up by saying, okay, you have performance anxiety, but what is performance anxiety? A lot of it is fear of failure related. And when I first meet with athletes, and I'll kind of walk you through the steps here. Um, first, the athletes they you know they're not really sure of what they're afraid of. Okay, so they have fear of failure, they have high performance anxiety, and I'll ask some questions like, hey, you know, well, tell me about what you're afraid of. I'm afraid of losing in this upcoming competition. Okay. I'm afraid of, um, you know, not getting first place. You know, I'm, I'm afraid of underperforming, let's say. And then I'll ask them, well, in practice, do you feel the same? I'm saying, no, in practice, I don't care. I make mistakes. I don't feel the same. You know, so there's usually a gap between practice and competition. Mm-hmm. So then I'll ask them the second question. Well, let's talk about um, what you're really afraid of. You know, we have to go deeper. Mm-hmm. Because here's what happens. Okay, we have different types of emotions. We have primary emotions. We have what are called social emotions or secondary emotions. Primary emotions are based just on that, like fear of danger, right? Or we have anger. But then we have secondary emotions, which have to do with our uh, acceptance in community. Okay, so social emotions have to do with fear of disappointment, fear of rejection, um, fear of, uh, what's the other one? embarrassment. And these type of emotions, these are the real causes almost always why an athlete is struggling. They're afraid of embarrassing themselves. They're afraid of not being accepted in a community, Mm -hmm. right? They're afraid of rejection, disappointing someone they love. And we need to understand what that is. Now, once we've understood what that is, then it's easier to resolve the conflict. And for some, it's very easy. Like an athlete say, hey, you know what? Oh, that's right, Patrick. I just realized that my dad or my mom meant a lot to me and they put a lot of pressure on me and they've done so much for me. And I just feel like, you know, if I do bad, then I'm letting them down. So we have to understand that fear of failure a lot of times is much deeper than what the surface shows us. And here's the other thing too, fear of failure. We have to see what it's disguised as a lot of times fear of failure is disguised as anger. So whenever an athlete is upset and they're angry, what it really is, is a disguise that they're scared. Like if you really look at it, if you look at the times when you get upset, almost always deep down inside, there's a fear attributed to that anger, right? It could be a fear of, oh, I don't want to hurt my, my girlfriend or my wife. You know, I don't, I'm afraid she's going to leave me, right? So you get upset, mm-hmm. right? So we have to understand what that is. And once you understand what that is, then you can kind of attack the boogeyman, right? It's like uh, the movie, the old movie, The Wizard of Oz, 
Wizard of Oz, there's the Oz, right? And they don't know what it is. And they think it's some real scary, like powerful mm-hmm. esoteric being. And then all of a sudden at the end, they realize it's just a short fat guy behind a curtain. <laughs> and that's what we're doing. We are removing the curtain to understand what is that actual fear that's holding us back. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we process it. Processing it means we face it. So what's happening is we have different levels of that. Most athletes I work with, what they're doing is they are suppressing their fears. Suppressing means you are consciously aware that you have a fear and you don't want to face it. So you're covering it up. That's the worst. Right? That is the worst. And and then you have repression, which is different than suppression. Repression is saying, hey, you know what? I don't even know what it is. Right? A lot of times it happens as a child before we can actually process or understand and grasp what's happening. We repress it as a defense mechanism. Right, to keep us safe, mm-hmm. but it never heals. Mm-hmm. Right, so every single time we get upset, what's happening is it's surfacing and it, we should heal it, but we don't understand what's going on. So then we have only two responses. One response is we push it away. By the way, that's what I've done. That was my struggle too, is you know, if I see a fear, like I'll get upset, right? That means you push away, like, hey, get out of here. Mm-hmm. That's the easy way out. The easy one, right? And actually that's the less of the two bad ones. And I believe 100%. Repression is. No, no, um, pushing it away. Oh, okay. Because when you push it away, like it's not good. Obviously, it's, they're both terrible in sports. But in life, at least, you know, you can kind of calm down faster. Like for me, I'm the type of person I could go to 10 and then I can go back to four in like an hour and I'm good. Mm-hmm. And then you have the other one, which is um, you try to suppress it, but not just suppress it. You actually try to hide it, right? You try to cover it up. You acknowledge it, but you try to cover it up. Try to bury it, right? Like this is a problem, but not for right now. Yeah, yeah exactly. Problem so, for tomorrow. So <laughs> you, you ever see um, athletes, they'll just shut down. So you have the ones that get really upset and you have the ones just completely shut down. They won't talk about their problems and you can't get a word out of them. That's yeah. the other response to this struggle, right? The emotional fear of failure is that we try to cover it and then bury it and say, okay, well, we're not going to face it. Mm. Well, that actually takes even longer. Then the athlete can be down in a bad state for weeks, months, even longer because they're purposefully, they know it's there, but they will not let it surface. Mm-hmm. So those are the two main struggles of fear of failure. And we have to be able to find out what it is. Like I said, that boogeyman. And then once we can un, you know, unwrap it or, or show it, then we can go after it. I can relate to that so much. I also think that you don't know what your options are when you're facing one of these situations. Like how are you even going to deal with that? Cause talking about it with, with someone who you love, like for example, how I used to rely on you for that. You know, you can, you can be supportive and show empathy and sympathy and whatnot, but you don't know how to get me out of that funk. Right. And that's where Mm -hmm. someone like you comes in. The thing is that I don't, like I said, I think this whole psychology therapy counseling topic is so taboo. People think it's like for crazy people. I don't know. I think it changed a lot. They're a lot more accepting now and, and people are starting to talk a lot more openly about mental health and Mm -hmm. how psychology can help you and all that stuff. But at least like when I grew up, when I was playing soccer, when I was uh, back in Venezuela, like, I don't, well, look, did, I didn't know this look was at the option. way the media portrayed even just regular, uh, psychology and therapy. You ever watched the show Sopranos? Yeah. Remember everybody in the yeah, Sopranos yeah. thinks he's a nut job for seeing a therapist. Now yeah. it's like, you're, you're like a nut job if you don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I guess <laughs> it, it's not only a matter of like recognizing that that's there, but also getting the right help, you yeah. know, getting the right advice and the right tools again. Yeah. I mean, think about from, from a real science standpoint, from a performance standpoint, they're skills, right? They're skills, but you can't see them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So really what the mind believes the body achieves, right? So basically what's happening is that everything starts with the mind, 100%. Mm-hmm. 
And because we can't see it, a lot of times we are labeled as there's a problem. Well, in reality, it's just because the athlete is just unskilled in that area, mm-hmm. right? They have world-class skills physically, technically, tactically, but mentally they just haven't been trained. Mm-hmm. And it's how do you train the mind at such a world-class level as you already do physically yeah. or technically? Yeah. Because once you have that, I mean, you're limitless. Yeah. So no, since we're talking about mindset, how is having a negative mindset um, play into burnout? Yeah, the mindset is really the core of that, too, because you have to believe that what you're doing makes a difference. And you have to believe that you belong as an athlete. If you believe that what you're doing or what you're contributing to has no worth, then there's no need to go on. Mm -hmm. And that's another part about burnout, right? Mm -hmm. Athletes get to the point where they feel like whatever they're doing has no value anymore. They're, They're not getting anywhere with it. So as a result, they end up quitting. And a lot of it has to do with their support team, right? It has to do with who are they around? Are they around more negative people? Mm-hmm. Are these people focusing more on validation? Are they focusing more on, you know, accolades like, you know, what your ranking is and, and how much weight did you lift and, you know, how did you place? And if they're looking at those things, well, those aren't very sustainable over the long term mm-hmm. because the reality is in science, you've got to go through a process of struggle in order to reach excellence. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just no other way. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. I am. So I just recently started taking up boxing Nice. and you know, we had maybe four or five sessions and I came into that. No, sorry. Four or five weeks of lessons and I came into a session and I don't know, I was just one of those days where you're just super uncoordinated. Mm -hmm. You can explain why like your brain's all foggy and like you're not moving how you usually move. It's the opposite of flow state. Yeah. Like the total opposite. Like you're trying to think about every punch and every move and it's just, your body doesn't cooperate. Mm -hmm. And I got so upset because I, I, I have a really hard time finding that balance between caring enough to continue showing up and like giving my best effort and enjoying the process like that's I guess that's the hardest part for me and look I'm six weeks into boxing like I'm not gonna have a fight anytime soon but in my mind I'm preparing for a fight Mm -hmm. you know in my mind I'm preparing to be a professional boxer but I don't want that to take away from like I don't want those negative thoughts to take away from again enjoying the process and leading to burnout again in another sport yeah Yeah. well you know how to combat that now kind of identity versus yeah versus uh, goal but um I think that it's 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 a, such an interesting topic because obviously it's it's prevalent in every sport, but it's just so I feel like in in strength sports specifically it's so black and white. So that negativity is so easy to 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 fall into because you know every, like I said every sport has the basically the law of diminishing returns. Skill acquisition in the beginning, you make these huge leaps and bounds, and then the longer you're in it and the better you get, the the more effort you have to put in to make even less progress. Mm-hmm. And in powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting or any of the strength sports, sometimes that means you don't improve the numbers that you lift for like a, a whole year. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like you're just running your head into a concrete wall over and over and over again. And I think that's when what you were mentioning, the support system and, and, and what those people around you value and promote to you can play or ha- like comes, comes into play and it has a huge impact. Yeah. And, and obviously working with somebody like a uh, sports psychologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you, you really struggled. You remember that one time when you, before, I don't know if it was before you started working with Patrick or just after when you broke the only thing in the gym that Dude, could possibly be broken. That was the instance that I was like, all right, I need help. But the craziest thing was after you blew off that steam and were able to come back down, I'll, I'll explain the situation. So she, she's, <laughs> yeah, war- she's warming up for a deadlift. 
uh, for a deadlift. And this is one of the days in her program where she's uh, being asked to go heavy to try to set a, a PR. Um, and she is feeling off for whatever reason. You know, she does a lift and it doesn't match in her mind how it should have felt. And, you know, she's getting. No, I think it didn't even budge. Whatever it was, you were. You had not felt great from the start of that session and every set I could just see you getting more and more and more angry. And you did the typical cliche powerlifting thing where when you're upset after a lift, you take off your belt and you whip it across the room. <laughs> and if you can imagine our gym, it's one of the, I mean, a powerlifting gym is very rugged, not very many different things can break, but she managed to hit the only thing in the entire <laughs> gym that could break was that, which was this, um, automatic wrap roller it wraps your powerlifting wraps. You just step on a pedal and it wraps it up. And it exploded everywhere. <laughs> like you just threw it, but you 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 were able to come back. It, it must have been after you started working with Patrick because before that, there's no way you would have been able to get back to yeah. normal. Uh, you you blew up, came back in the gym, and then you ended up hitting a, a PR two rep max. That was when you did uh, two or th two or three. You did uh, two hundred and thirty five kilos. So five oh seven for three. No, it was more than 507, 517 or something like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was maybe not the optimal way, but it was a huge improvement, huge step forward from what you had done in the past, which would have been to just say, screw it. And then your session would be over. Right. So I thought that was interesting. Even just like the small, like not even just having a perfect mm -hmm. outlook, but just the, the progress made was able to get her not even just through the session, but literally that's your best session. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Well, well, here's the other thing, too, that you really made a good point on is the fact that too many athletes, they focus on um, the emotion. Like, why am I angry? Why am I upset? And in reality, the short-term benefit, the short-term gains we're looking to make is to improve the reaction, right? Because the emotion is triggered before our thoughts. Mm -hmm. So it's actually unrealistic to say, hey, you know what? I'm supposed to, in my early stages of working my mind, just stop being upset, right? But it's how we react first. And your reaction was better. Although you broke something in the gym, still you're able to come back and get it done. And, and then that consistency over time, you know, it just gets better and yeah. better and better. So it's more about the, the reaction than it is about stopping the emotion. That is the first big mistake that many athletes make. They think there's something wrong with them. So why am I getting so, so upset? Why am I so scared? It's okay to be scared. It's okay to be upset. But, you know, your reaction we can work on now. And then as a result, guess what? You're going to gain confidence. You're going to get more reps in. You're going to be able to then reduce that emotion. And then, of course, we focus on healing the emotion, too. Yeah, I love that. It's not about getting rid of the emotion altogether. You can experience it, feel it, let, let, let yourself go through it, yeah. and then collect yourself and go back and do what you're supposed to do. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, I love that. How do you combat monotony and boredom? Especially in powerlifting, I feel like it's impossible. Yeah, you do three lifts all day, every day. Every day you do squat bench stuff. <laughs> It's really tough. Financial sport? To, yeah. To, to be honest, it, it's so specific to the individual. So I can give like some kind of platitudes that we can work, work off of. Uh, one would be, you know, your environment. You can change your environment up a little bit. What I have found is athletes at high levels, they like the pressure of other people in some ways, like feeling like they have a goal every day. So one would be, you know, even recording yourself. I had one of my athletes who's in CrossFit. Um, he did really well in this competition recently. And basically what we did is we said, look, I want you to put on Instagram live your workouts. At first he was scared. <laughs> I don't know if I want to do this, right? Or if I have a bad day, sure. it's like, it's not about that. You got to face it, but also it's going to get you to push for more. 
So just recording it live so you're there, you feel like something's on the line every day. Mm-hmm. And that's tough because you have the ego you're fighting against too. Because if you have a bad day, it's you okay. got to chalk it up, right? You got to look at it and say, hey, oof, you know what? I, I know I didn't do well and I got to hear these comments, but those comments aren't even for you. I've also told athletes, like, don't even look at the comments. It's easier said than done. Most mm-hmm. athletes, I can't do that. Um, but, you know, just to make sure, hey, I have something that <clears throat> is on the line. Yes, it's three lifts every day, but people are watching me. So I feel like it has more value. It has more meaning to my mm-hmm. workouts. Mm-hmm. I like going and training at other gyms sometimes I just like for that, that, that reason. You know, it's, you're in front of a new group of people. You kind of feel like you have something to prove. Man, I've had some of my best training sessions happen at other gyms, even like after a long flight when you should not have a good session. But just because you're in a different environment around different people, like it motivates you so much more. Yeah. yeah. I think that's good to just get outside of your gym or train in front of other people or I don't know. Yeah, I guess live Live record your Yeah, your the live thing's interesting. Yeah. Could be cool. That is scary. You don't want to throw a belt when you're on live. <laughs> um, what else do we have here? Challenge and skill. I guess that one's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think we're talking about in, in terms of skill acquisition, what do you do to get to the next level? From a mental standpoint, most athletes, they set their target high too high. So they are set up for failure. So from a mental and emotional standpoint, and we've seen this in habits, but from an emotional standpoint, if you're too high with the goal, then all it does is beat down your confidence. So Mm -hmm. the idealistic goal is to find that kind of little comfort area or discomfort area where you are challenged, but it's not impossible, right? In fact, there's a certain uh, kind of ratio between success and failure that leads to faster optimal performance where you're successful about 60% of the time. You fail around 40%, Mm -hmm. depending on the sport, depending on what you're doing. But overall, to get better with the skill, it starts with the mind, right? You have to have a reason or an understanding of why a struggle is so important. Mm -hmm. Because if not, you're not going to get to the next level, right? Most athletes, they stick with what's safe, right? So, for example, they'll surround themselves in a group of people where where they're the best and they won't get out of it, right? And then that also can lead to burnout because they get bored because Mm -hmm. they're not challenged. Mm -hmm. And then when they go into competition, all of a sudden now they're exposed to a higher level and the anxiety is there because they haven't faced it. Mm -hmm. So to get to the highest level, you need to have this type of consistency and structure and say, okay, well, how difficult should the level be, right? But also, you know, how okay am I with the short-term failure? So most success athletes, and it's kind of two-part full when I work with athletes, the first part is, okay, to be very successful in sports, you have to be very short-term focused in competition. That means you're focused more on just the next point, the next shot, you know, the next um, possession. But in terms of success, you also have to be long-term focused with enduring the struggle, right? So another key component that really helps athletes a lot is you want to purposefully look for what is unnatural to you in that sport, right? So if something is unnatural, in other words, let's say a basketball player shoots better with the right hand than the left, well, you got to go after the left for a while. Even if it means embarrassing yourself, looking bad, you know, getting yelled at by your coach, you have to do it, sustain it for a long time mm-hmm. and make an agreement with yourself to be okay with it. Because mm-hmm. the other part too is how we treat ourselves, Right. I think that's a really, really big part, too, that I've noticed with a lot of athletes is that in order to be successful, you have to do the things that you would do for your best friend. You know, many athletes, they are the most self-critical, hardest people on themselves. Mm-hmm. I know I was, too. Like, you know, you, you just <laughs> you're so hard on yourself that it, it just it compounds. And then what happens, you end up quitting. Right. You never, ever have a great practice because you don't get to that point where you can struggle enough. And the reality is this. 
in order to succeed at a high level, you have to be your own best friend. You have to be patient with yourself. You have to be forgiving of yourself. You have to be loving of yourself. You do all these things that normally we wouldn't do because we require so much. And mm-hmm. when we can do that, then we can sustain those tough times, really, because it's, it's those tough times that then create the great times, mm-hmm. as we already know, right? But it's really about that. So from a mental standpoint, we have to treat ourselves differently, we have to be kind to ourselves, right? This is something that coaches don't tell us because coaches from an outside point, a lot of them are pointing out the mistakes and getting upset. And, you know, we feel like we got to be perfect. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like a lot of uh, uh, lifters and, and people in other sports, too, like raw talent and aptitude can can get you to the top if you're you know genetically gifted enough or you have a, a, a good enough ability to to learn. Um, but staying at the top is what's really tough. And I think that's where all of that stuff comes into play. You know, how many people do you see? I'll relate back to powerlifting just because of our audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people with amazing genetics, amazing potential, they come into the sport, they break some records and they're in and out of the sport in under three years. Yeah, I think those like gaps in mental strength really manifest themselves after the initial kind of period of fast success. Ends. Right. Well, because I mean, if you look at the people who get who get to the top, it's all people who know how to work hard. You know, they have no problem going, get going in the gym or on the field or whatever their sport is and, and pushing as hard as they can. They have the genetic gifts to do it. You know, maybe they have the right people around them and they've never really had to work on the mental game. And then when you get to that high level and everybody's nipping at your heels and now you feel all the pressure. Of- that was going to be my next question. Like, do you have to wait until you start struggling with your mental strength or mindset to Good get question. help or, or is this, is this something that should be a lot more mainstream? Like a lot, a lot of, uh, um, athletes who are trying to get to the highest level should be doing before they get there. Yeah, that's a really great question. So I've had the opportunity to work with both. And what I mean by that is I've worked with athletes who are super young and it's before they really have any emotional struggles. And what the parents are looking for is they're like, look, we want you to provide the skills for our kids. So that way, when they get to that point, they know what to do. So it's about providing the skills, right? So I've had, for example, one of my athletes, he was, and this is exceptionally young. I do an evaluation before I even start this process, but he was seven years old when I worked with him the first time and he was in karting. So, you know, karting, racing. And that's so cool. He was incredible. I mean, I, I said, look, let me do an evaluation. Let me sit down with him first. And within five minutes, I felt like I was talking to a mini adult. Incredible. So I started working with him and we worked on just mostly behavioral skills at that level. And from a cognitive standpoint, you can't go into anything too elaborate, but he repetitively did it and worked on it, worked on it. And then he won a world championship four years later. Wow. And the dad sends me a picture saying, Hey, you know what? Thank you so much. Everything you did plan the seed. Right. So without question, I've seen that this helps explode the mental or the physical game with the mental part of it. Now, I love it. And, and that's really what it's about. It, it's not necessarily about do you have a problem yet or not. It's like, hey, do you want all the, til- the tools to be able to reach the highest level of your sport? Yeah, I think it's dumb not to. Like you, why would you leave any stone unturned? It's, the, it's what I've been telling Fernando. Fernando Rees is a, a Brazilian Olympian. He's been to three Olympics. This year he was supposed to, like he was going for a podium. Mm-hmm. And he had a really good chance at doing it. And I'm like, Fernando, like, have you seen a sports psychologist or have, have you read any books about mindset? And are, are, are you uh, meticulous with about your diet or your sleep or your stress? And he wasn't. 
obviously it's amazing that he's been able to just three Olympics, that's 12 years. Mm -hmm. And then he's going for the fourth. Like that's crazy that he doesn't have anything dialed in and he, not anything, but these other things dialed in and yet mm -hmm. he's able to, to perform at such a high level. But when I asked him about mindset, he like, didn't want to go there at all. He's like, Oh, I'm not comfortable like talking about my emotions. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk to anyone about how I feel. I just want to do. I don't know why I brought this up, but it was just well, interesting. It's, just, it's a good example. You know, that's a guy who's at the top and he, he has the work ethic. He has the, obviously the genetics, oh, yeah, leaving stones all that unturned. stuff. But yeah, that, that maybe that last part, that last stone that he hasn't turned over the men, the, the mental game and practices could be the difference between a podium spot and not. No, so it's incredible. It? And, and, you know, I've seen it. Here's the other thing too. A lot of athletes, they don't want to go through the tough times to be able to reap the rewards. Mm -hmm. I was working with an athlete two years ago who I still work with now, and he was ranked at the time 500 in the world in golf, like just outside of 500. So he was fed up. He came to Miami and says, look, I, at this point, I, I, I'll do anything. You know, I'm, I'm willing to just work hard at my game and kind of put the ego to the side and, and, and not look at the accolades, which was the best decision he ever made. So within the first six months on and off, he was doing a little bit better, not doing so good. We're learning a lot. Well, then a span, once we discovered what it was, I mean, the span of 10 weeks, he won eight tournaments. No, not eight. He had top 10 finishes, eight out of 10 weeks, won two tournaments and finished a year ranked, I think it was 80 or 79 in the world. Wow. wow that's incredible. Because, you know, you have to understand every athlete, most athletes get to that point where they're sick of it. You know, you kind of hit this performance ceiling wall where like, you know what, I'm, I'm done with this and you make a decision. But it doesn't have to be that way, right? Like who wants to go through the misery of that? Right. You know, going back to what we were discussing about expectations and how that creates a lot of unhappiness. Well, one of the most important things for any athlete to reach the full potential and perform freely is you have to be okay with your biggest fear, right? You have to be okay with it. It doesn't mean you're, you're going to say, hey, that's what I want or I'm going to do this. But once you acknowledge whatever your fear is and you're okay with it, then you can be free, right? Because then you're not... You know, you're not trying to avoid something, right? So, you know, that's the big part too, is understanding, okay, what is it and getting through it. But if you don't know what it is and you keep holding back the whole time, that's the other problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. Hey, this is a good spot to end the conversation. I do want to leave our listeners with uh, some tools. So you are starting your YouTube channel. What's it called? S excuse me, SPMI TV. Okay, yeah. so we'll, we'll link it there. Mm -hmm. So there you can find, you know different how would you explain kind of the concept of the youtube yeah channel? so this channel uh, i created to really help athletes and this channel consists of various areas and some are more specific than others but they're areas that athletes are looking for athletes are looking for help and you know it discusses the methodologies behind it there are techniques that are involved as well but it's really for you to get in-depth knowledge weekly to be able to help your mental game Okay. And then if you take it one step further, mm -hmm. uh, you can take the courses that you're finishing writing. That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. So what are those? Yeah, the courses are excellent. So basically what, what I am in the process of finishing is a really, really, I'd say one of the most complete courses for athletes that's going to be out there. I'm going to take it. And it's going to be awesome. And basically I'm going to walk every athlete through it and you're going to have an in-depth sessions where you're going to be able to target all of these areas. And we're going to start with the more uh, methodological parts, right? You understand what it is, but then we're going to get very detailed in how you can apply it directly to what you're doing. Is it individual or group? This is going to be group and individual, okay. depending. There's going to be different um, options available. So there's going to be, first off, the courses that are just uh, virtual. 
and then you're going to have the group option and then the individual. Is it pre-recorded or you're going to be teaching each lesson? Yeah. So the group is going to be live. Okay. Um, the virtual is pre-recorded. Okay. And then of course the one-on-one is live. Yeah. Okay. And then if you wanted to take it in one step, you can just do the individuals where you do like I did, where you buy a package mm -hmm. and then you use them as you go. Yeah. The, the goal is just like anything in life to create mastery, you need repetition. Mm -hmm. So it really is just embedding these skills and this mindset and really all the tools needed to be world-class, right? That, that's really the goal of this program. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, to, and to all the, the athletes out there who are listening to this, who have already turned over all the stones of working hard, mm -hmm. changing their environment, you know, doing all those things that, uh, you know, uh, that we're traditionally told to do. This is an opportunity with a sports psychologist to make those beginner gains that you can't make in all the, those other areas because you've been working at them already. You know, it's like, there's such a huge potential to make very quick progress, I think, uh, you know, and working with someone like yourself. So. And improving your mindset goes way above and beyond uh, sports. Yeah. Right. Like improving your mindset when things get tough, when you're, when you're not feeling motivated, when you're afraid, like all of these are things that can help you in your day-to-day -day life as well. Yeah. Depends on what you apply it to. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, definitely check out all the things we just mentioned. Yeah. We'll link it at the bottom of the podcast. And okay. My last question, if someone wanted to, cause I get asked this question all the time, like what's my favorite mindset book? So what's yours? Mindset. That's mindset so by Carol, Carol Dweck. Dweck. I mean, but I read it. aside from that though, um, you know, in, in terms of mindset, that's, that's such a good question. Um, well, I have a ton of things racing. I just finished a book I really liked by, Daniel Coyle, it's called The Talent Code. Excellent book. And, and that's not necessarily about mindset. It's more about, you know, the importance of what you attribute your focus to and how to create mastery with your skills and the science behind it. Right. And that's a really good one. But mindset, you have, you know, you have your, your very, very renowned books like Mindset, you have Grit, and then you have more niche specific books for, you know, more targeted areas like the one I, I just mentioned there. But, um, yeah, excellent books. Did you read, uh, with winning in mind? No, I haven't read that one. That one's so good. I actually bought like five copies and I've been giving it to like different people. I gave one to Fernando, one mm. to Matt Fraser. That's one of my favorite books. Excellent. Yeah. I'll check it out for sure. Cool. Awesome. So thank you so much for coming. Absolutely. Where can people find you on Instagram? Yes. Yeah, so if you go to Instagram, it's sports mental training. So sports mental training. And then also you can go to the website, which is go SPMI.com. So G O S P M I.com. Excellent. Awesome. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you guys. Yep. It was really, it was great. It was just, it was hard getting used to hearing my voice. It's <laughs>